with that, we'll pray and we'll get into Esther chapter 2. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We do thank you for um, really a special prayer for those moms who are uh, just right now um, mothering children in the home, uh, Lord, from, I don't know, 22 and down. There are um, just many things that moms go through from cleaning up, throw up at three in the morning to, to, to just all sorts of things that, that really go unnoticed. And so, Father, we pray for those moms that are just right now in the trenches that you would, um, Lord, that you would just give them grace and, and help them, Lord, as they mother their children. Lord, we thank you for this day. We uh, thank you for this the story of Esther. Lord, we ask that you would help us that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this text, that we would correctly understand what it's saying, what happened historically. And, and Father, that you would, um, Lord, through uh, your timeless word, that you would um, speak to us individually, that our hearts would be softened, that we would um, really just hear from you, Lord, um, that you'd encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would uh, move us along in our walk and relationship with you. We thank you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Esther chapter 2, verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ashwaris. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he had told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. And Father, we do ask that you would help us, Lord, now as we go through this story. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I only read a short portion. We're going to go all the way through chapter 3. Uh, but I, a, lot, a lot of times when we, we hear reading, we kind of disengaged and, and the story sort of unfolds. I want this part of the story to kind of come alive before we move forward. Um, Esther's an interesting book. It's a book where uh, one of the very few books of the Bible, that I think Song of Solomon may be the only other book, where the name of God isn't mentioned at all. There's no mention of him in Esther. Um, God is very much in the shadows uh, speaking through this story. When we look at Esther, it's during a time in history after uh, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, had been taken into captivity, they'd been scattered, a few gener- generations has gone by. Persia's this empire that had, had raised to dominance, it controlled the world. The nation that would follow Persia was the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, followed by the Romans. And so here they are, they're scattered they're living in captivity. We are introduced in the first chapter to this king, Xerxes, and, and there's two names. Xerxes is easier to say. I'm going to try to stick to her, Xerxes, or I'm going to stumble across the other name that's right here. Um, 
He, he was a man that he referred to himself as king of kings. He was the, the king of the world. The world was at his disposal. He throws this six-month party followed by a seven-day party in chapter 1 where ev- the drinks are free. It's, it's open bar. Whatever you want to drink or not drink, it's up to you. Uh, during that party, by the end, he's pretty drunk. He says, my wife's pretty beautiful. He tells his men, go get my wife, tell her to come in her crown. Many commentators I hold that all he wanted to see was this, his wife in her crown and nothing else in front of everybody. And she said, no way, Jose, in Hebrew or not Hebrew, whatever language she was speaking. But she's like, absolutely not. He's a fool. He gets mad. He basically, he basically divorces her, kicks her out of her place of authority in the kingdom, History tells us that in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, he had a series of military campaigns against Greece, who was the rising kingdom. He'd followed some bad advice, essentially came home uh, with his tail between his uh, legs, kind of realizing that he'd sort of lost um, a number of significant battles that would lead to ultimately his kingdom being destroyed. And when he came back in defeat, he gets home a couple years later and says, man, I sure do miss having a wife. And of course, Queen Vashti was gone. So he throws this big year. Last week, we, we looked at the story of the selection of, of how Queen Esther, or, or Esther, who is this Jewish girl that was in captivity, but is, is now free, just dispersed in the nation, how she gets selected to become the queen. We sort of view this in fairy tale senses. The, the reality, what was covered last week, is that it was no fairy tale. If this was modern day, this is very much what we're battling is the, um, the, check, the child sex slave industry world. That basically these girls were taken into captivity and forced into this life. Esther selected as the queen. And our story picks up in verse 19 and 20. It sort of gives a, a, a general sort of picture of what was going on. We see that Esther had been selected queen. Mordecai is now moved into this position of, of authority. He's sitting at the king's gate. This is sort of uh, where, where business was transacted. This is sort of um, at the recorder's office. You know, all the important stuff sort of happens there. Um, Esther is now the queen. She hasn't shared that she's a Jew or her family's lineage. Neither has Mordecai. They're sort of living in secrecy. And, and as this is happening, verse 21 says that in these days, so in this new place of authority, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ashwaris or King Xerxes. And so this assassination plot is sort of developed. Um, these two guys are, are eunuchs, meaning they've been castrated, either um, most likely through unnatural means. Sometimes it was natural, but pretty much that's a, it's not very common. So most of these guys were castrated. Um, they were sort of the secret service of the day, kind of controlling these women. We don't know what happened, but they're upset. And they come up with a plan on how they can kill the king. Verse 23, now the plot, when, um, I'm sorry, but the plot, verse 22, but when the plot became known to Mordecai 
And he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So here in the gate, Mordecai is an official. He hears these two men plotting against the king. These two men are... it would be if you were somewhere, secret service are around, you know, the president came to town this, this, this week to San Diego. It would be like if somebody that was in some sort of official capacity, here's two secret service guys start talking like, hey, we're going to kill the president. We're going to take care of business. Mordecai hears this, and so he goes to Esther, who's the queen, and he informs the queen his, we often refer to her as a niece, Likely it was a cousin, but her parents were killed. She came under his care. In my own family, I have nieces and nephews that are essentially my own age. So my kids, there's a, they're technically cousins, but there's such an age difference that we just sort of say, yeah, don't call, just call, like my, my nephew Brock. It's like, don't call him cousin Brock. Just call him Uncle Brock. It just makes more sense. And so I sort of think that that's what's what's happened is why we sort of, in our minds when we think about Mordecai and Esther, we think sort of uncle and niece, but they're cousins and distant at some level. I don't know, I teased Ben this week. He's like, well, they were like second and third, like whatever. And I'm like, you're from the South. You know, like the whole marrying. He's like, yeah, we know like in the South, we know like who's legal to be married and best shooting me like I'm in trouble now. (laughs) You got to make fun of our friends, our brothers and sisters from the South. I love Duck Dynasty, so I'm like, I feel okay, kind of like, you know, throwing some stones every now and again. Where was I? Okay. Mordecai, Mordecai gets wind of this. He lets Esther know. Esther goes to the king and says, Mordecai informed me that down at the city gate, as business is being transacted, there's two guys who are in your, uh, your authority, this Big Thin and Teresh. They're making plans to kill you. And so in verse 23, we see that uh, an inquiry was made, uh, the sort of, are they innocent or guilty in this whole process? And we read, now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, so they started collecting the facts, collecting the evidence, and apparently they were able to collect enough information, we don't know what it was, but these claims by Mordecai were proven to be true. And so they were both hanged on gallows. There's some question over what is it. Some, some suggest that this was like a post with a pointy end and they literally would basically stab him onto the post to kill him. Others suggest that it was crucifixion that we don't really know. We know that the Persians sort of invented crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. What we know is that they were proven guilty, they were executed. Following this, it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So the book of Chronicles, not from the Bible, but but a government would have like, this is like their business minutes. They're, okay, on this day, these two guys, they tried to, they they plotted an assassination of the king. Uh, Mordecai informed us and they were executed. Sort of end of our story. We get to chapter three, verse one. After these events, Uh, Some time had elapsed. We don't know how much time. And we read, King Asherus promoted Haman, 
right away we should, if we're following the story, it's like, who's Haman? Why is Haman promoted? Naturally, if you stop an assassination plot, the person that you think should get promoted is Mordecai. But it, it, this flows through. Mordecai's passed over. Nothing's done for him. If you go to chapter 6, verse 3, we'll get there eventually. We'll see that the, not the king down the road is years later is having a night of insomnia. He can't sleep. I can't sleep. I need to go to bed. What can I do? Oh, give me those chronicles. Leviticus. I'll start reading. And eventually I'll get tired. And I'll fall asleep. And so as he's reading the Chronicles, verse 3 of chapter 6, it said that he discovers that Mordecai had spared his life. And so in verse 3, it says, the king said what? He calls in his guys. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. So Mordecai's reading, trying to fall asleep. He sees that Mordecai saved his life. So he gets his officials. He wakes him up. Hey, come in here. I read about Mordecai. And he asks, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. This is years later. You can go back to chapter 3. So we know that there's this great protection, that the king has been spared. Nothing's done for Mordecai. This, this whole story of the Jews is really sad. Like, what, what's happening today, what happened with Hitler, what happened in all of these stories throughout history of the Jews almost being wiped out is not new. And I think of poor Mordecai, like his whole niece, cousin, gets basically swept up into this thing for a year. She's selected as queen. Here you think he's going to get a break, but he got passed over at work. I don't know how many of you have been passed over at work. It's never a good thing getting passed over. You get like really upset. Like how, can, how did that jerk get passed over over me? I'm doing all the hard work. I'm doing all everything. The most recent person I know that got passed over was Pastor Ben. I mean, ser- seriously, this is, he was this time last year, he was a Navy chaplain really desiring, this is see his wife's here. So I'm not sure. Don't let the facts get in the way of any story I tell. Like don't. I'm pretty sure he wanted to be a career guy. Like, I feel like he would have been a, yeah, she's not in. So that's true. Okay, good. Um, like, I think his plan was just to be in the Navy as a chaplain and to retire out of the Navy. And so they have a child. They had little Bradley, whenever that was, whenever time eludes me, six months, a year, six, and nine, not a year, you know, some few months ago. I'm the first one to go bring him a meal. And they, that's like, welcome home to the new baby. And he says, I got passed over. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? I got passed over a bunch of the Navy because I just stopped taking the test because I was in Bible college. He's like, no, no, no. That means that when December comes, I'm like kicked out of the Navy. Oh. Oh. Well, I'll be praying for you. I'm really sorry to hear the news. And then we leave. And then my wife driving away elbows me. She's like, do you you think that maybe God's calling him here as associate pastor? I'm like, well, I never never thought of that. I didn't even cross my mind. And so talking with Ben, like over this whole thing about even how he was brought here, like it kind of happened. He got passed over from a humanistic standpoint. It's like, that's really horrible. But then as we see kind of God's plan, it's like, wow, this is like really awesome. Like I could have found a better guy to be an associate. Like really, I, I first I wouldn't have even sought to look for an associate pastor. Then I went to found him. Like this is, 
that, that through that circumstance, how God develops us. And, and here's a situation with Mordecai. He's passed over. It seems unfair. It doesn't seem right that he's passed over. Yet in the midst of this, God is working silently behind the scenes, orchestrating certain events that ultimately would spare the Jewish people. And I keep thinking, why? If you do any study of Israel and the Jews, the fact that there's an Israel today, it's a total miracle. It's a total miracle. They didn't exist as a nation for 2,000 years. Most people my age, we didn't know it because when I was born, they were already a nation. But the older generation, I, I know that I had a talk about Bob Towsley back there. He's like, no, I'll never forget the day that Israel was made a state again. And I think, why is there this assault against Israel? Like, why today is the leader of Iran saying that he wants to nuke them off the face of the earth? Why is it that Hitler raised up? Why is it that, that Herod, when Jesus was coming, uh, killed all of the baby boys? Why is it that when Moses was born, that all of the baby boys were, were killed, yet Moses was spared in, in the river? Why is it that today's story, um, if I got ahead of my, I got a, basically a, an edict is going to be put in place that every single Jew in the world at the time is about to be wiped off the face of the earth. And as I've been thinking about this this week, the answer is because Satan understands the greater picture. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when, when humanity fell and sin entered the world, and happy Mother's Day, I love it when I do this. I love it when I do this on Mother's Day. Is, is God made a promise. There was a curse to man and woman. Satan was there, and he said, you're done. He made the promise of the Messiah. He said, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And God made it clear that this Messiah would come through the nation of Israel. And so it's no surprise that Satan would work through the story to try to decimate the Jewish people because that's where the Messiah would come from. And so here we're in the midst of this people that they've already been decimated. They're scattered. They're in the despora. They're, they're nobody. And here this guy gets passed over by this man, Haman, who is an evil, evil man. And the verse, before I realized it was Mother's Day, the verse is in Job. Like any time a pastor goes to Job, you know it's bad. This is the verse. I'm like, I'm not going to put it on the screen. Maybe God's trying to hide Job from me right now. But the verse I've been thinking about, poor Mordecai, all week, what he's gone through, his generations, is Job 14.1, which I'm like, I can't read this on Mother's Day, but of course, against my better judgment, I'm reading it. It says, man who is born of a woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. <laughs> you know, people are starting to laugh like, wait, that just said that you're born, your life is short, and between the beginning and the end, there's all sorts of trouble. <laughs> You're Bible interpreters. That's, that's exactly what the Bible says. It's like, I'm weed whacking yesterday because of the curse. Like, I don't think before the fall of man, weed whacking existed. Like, we grow our plants and there's weeds and thistles and it's a pain. It's, okay, I'm letting a little anger get out. It feels good. 
But life is hard. And this Mordecai is, we don't know how he's react. We don't really know. Like the Bible doesn't tell us what he's going through. This guy saved the king. And now he's passed over. He promoted Haman, chapter 3, verse 1. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. So this guy, Haman, we don't know what he did. All we know is now you're nobody, and now you're like second, third, fourth in command. He has ultimate authority over the nation. Verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down or paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he, that's Mordecai, had told them, his co-workers, that he was a Jew. So Haman's elevated. As Haman goes out to the gate, when he passes by, everybody who's there begins to bow down to Haman because of who he is connected to King Xerxes. King Xerxes had inscriptions that said he's the king of kings. Sounds familiar. The Bible says king of king, lord of lords. We just sang that song before the offering, or not before the offering, whenever it was, before earlier. King of kings, lord of lords, I will worship, I will bow down. We're singing that to the creator of the universe. And so everybody's bowing down to the king through Haman, recognizing him as God. And Mordecai's not bowing. And see, my first inclination is to think, well, maybe he's an insurrectionist and he's just stubborn like me. And so he's refusing to bow out of this idea of insurrection. But we know he's not an insurrectionist because of the previous verses. He just spared the king. It would have been super easy for him to overhear, oh, you're going to assassinate the king. I didn't hear that. In fact, I'll turn around so you guys can get to him or whatever. So he spared the king's life. He's trying to be a good Jew. We don't know how practicing he was. And even if he was a lukewarm Jew, by the time this happens, it sort of has crossed the line to where he won't bow. We know that the reason he wouldn't bow is because he's a Jew. His co-workers are going to him, why aren't you bowing? Why aren't you bowing? Why aren't you bowing? They eventually say, we're going to go to Haman and see if your reason is good enough. And so they go to Haman. They say, hey, he's not bowing to you because he's a Jew. And so I think that what we see here is this tension, which I, I feel that we need to at least ponder or to think about. We live in a nation that's growing more and more like anti-Christian. And I'm certainly not pushing for, you know, like don't, whatever, don't, don't take this too far. But, but there's going to come a point likely, and I don't know when that is, and I don't really want to even think about this, is like a, there, there comes a point when the government could tell us that in order to honor the authority, which we're supposed to do as Christians, that honoring that authority requires us to go against God's commands. 
we see it through history that that's where the point of like disobedience comes when to, to honor the king or to honor the authority that's over you requires you to cross a line in, that the scripture is very clear about. It's a terrible bound. We're aliens in a foreign world, not aliens like from space, but we're, I'm leaving the comment out. But, but, but we, our citizenship is in heaven as Christians. And so it's a difficult to, to be in this world like, and find that line. And, and the answer's never clear. But here, Mordecai's convictions had grown so strong that he says, I cannot bow to Haman. And so verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. He was angry angry, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Asherahs. This is huge. I don't know if you guys caught that. It said that he, he controlled his anger. He's filled with rage, and he's He's keeping his anger under control because his satisfaction to just kill Mordecai, like Mordecai wouldn't bring enough satisfaction. So he's keeping his cool so he can initiate this plan that all of the Jews could be decimated, could be exterminated throughout the whole region, which extended everywhere because it was the known world at the time. King Xerxes was king. This went all the way to Jerusalem. So this would be a plan that would wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. And in verse 7, we see in the first month, which was the month of Nisan, the 12th year, king of Asherah's Pur, that is the lot, <clears throat> was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. Sort of a weird verse. Pur is essentially a lot, which that doesn't help you guys out anyhow because we don't cast lots. But think of dice, like like rolling number, like rolling the dice, seeing sort of numbers that sort of are good luck and are bad luck. Um, so what would happen? It's essentially the beginning of the year. These guys would roll the dice for every day throughout the year. It's not like they were rolling the dice every single day of the year, but basically they sat down with the calendar, they rolled the dice. Seven, good luck. Seven, good luck. Seven, good luck. Thirteen, oh, 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 bad luck. So they did this throughout the whole year. Haman says, ah, basically on December 31st of the year, I came up, that's a bad luck plan. I'm going to use this to get my scheme on how we can destroy the Jews. So from there, he goes in verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ashuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples and all the providences of your kingdom. See, he doesn't realize that the queen is actually one of these people. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they will be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver 
into the hands of those who carry out the king's carry on the king's business to put them in the king's treasuries. So he says, "Hey, we got a bad this day is bad luck." And as I take this number, I see it's connected to these people. He doesn't lay out who these people are. He just says these people. These people don't follow our laws. They don't honor us. And it's really the best thing that we could do is basically let's just do away with them all. In fact, I believe so much in this. I'm going to, I'll be happy. I'd be happy, king, to fund the whole operation. This is a lot of money. He says, I'll pay for the whole military campaign. And in verse 10 and 11, we see really that, that um, King Xerxes is just really a horrible leader. We see that he goes into these military campaigns, follows bad advice, kind of just, it's really like he's leading through his glands. I'm glad you guys got that. Like, he really doesn't care about the bigger picture. And so he's like, oh, there's people, bad luck. Oh, sure, let's, let's run with your plan. The king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also do to them as you please. He basically said, don't you worry about funding it. Here's the company credit card. Go crazy. If it looks, if you think this needs to happen, just run with it. Now, what I passed over the first time, because I want to make a point the second time, is we could pass over this. The, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. We read this and we think, oh, this is Haman from San Francisco, or this is Haman from El Centro, or this is Haman. Like, what is it really? Does this really mean anything? It's the second time in verse 1 he's introduced as Haman the Agagite. Now in verse 10, he's introduced as Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And so the writer of this book is trying to catch our attention that, hey, there might be something a little bit more. There might be a little story behind the story that you might want to investigate. And so I know you guys are dying of interest about what's going on here. And so if you turn with me back to Exodus, if you'd like, Exodus chapter 17, is that right? Yep, 17 verses 14 through 16. So if you can find Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. Now this whole story is a story that I think most of us will know. Moses is leading the people into a battle Where can I, uh, if I get to the right chapter, that'll be more helpful. So Moses is trying to return to the promised land. They get to this Amalek. A war between Israel and these people ensues. This is a story where Moses on top of the hill, and as long as his hands are like this, Israel's winning. If his hands sink down, they begin to lose the battle, and the battle's continuing where he can't keep his hands up. You, you, it's very hard to hold your hands like this for a long time. I'll never forget one church service I went to where the, the, the guy playing the guitar said, let's lift our hands to the Lord, which I don't like. It. Like It's always hard for me. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I'll lift my hands up. The guy's singing like this. Then the guy goes to start playing the guitar, and he never tells us we can put our hands down. So we're like, I can't, I can't, 
I can't do it anymore. <laughs> like, come on. I felt like I was back in buds, like going through SEAL training. Like, have mercy. Because <sighs> I didn't want to quit. So I feel for Moses here. So, he's, so he goes through the whole battle. He eventually wins. And we come to verse 14. And we read in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. For Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, and said, The Lord has sworn. The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So following that battle, God tells Israel, for generations following, you are going to be at war with this people. It will never be satisfied. So if you'll turn with me over to Samuel, 1 Samuel, a couple books to the back, 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's one of my favorite chapters. I sort of forgot the, the, the paragraph I really like in this chapter is found around verse 22. Saul has been confronted by a prophet, Samuel. And as he confronts him, he says, Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have received, rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so as he's being confronted, Saul had basically taken matters into his own hands, God instructed him. He thought he knew better. He did things his own way. And when he's confronted by the prophet, the prophet says, you know, God doesn't care about your money. He doesn't care about your wealth. He doesn't care about your offering. What God cares about most is the obedience of your heart, that you're faithful to him, that you do what he says, that you walk with him, even if he instructs you to do something that can be a little strange. So I've loved that paragraph. I've loved this for a long time. I've, but if you asked me two weeks ago, hey, Gunnar, what's that? You know that paragraph that, that obedience is better than sacrifice? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great verse. Can you tell me the context that that was said? I'd be like, Mm-mm. you'd hear crickets in my head. Like, oh, man, I'm a pastor. I'm in trouble. I need to like, what? So if we go back to verse 1 in the same chapter, as the story is unfolding, then Samuel the prophet said to Saul, the Lord has sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. Does that name sound familiar? It should sound very familiar. That's the people back in the other story. For what he did to Israel, how he sent himself against him, on the way while he was coming from Egypt. He refers back to the story against Moses. And he says, God's going to continue to punish Amalek, that this generation after generation. Verse 3, he says, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey donkey. And so Saul goes to war. Few verses unravels. He gets, we get down to verse 8. He captured Agag. That sound familiar, guys? 
Haman the Agagite. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of all the sheep, oxen. So basically, God said, do this. Saul does about 90% of it. He keeps the king, King Agag, spares him. He says, well, you know what? These are like, this is like prime choice meat. Why would we be, why would we be throwing all this meat? Let's just save this meat. Let's take the plunders of this and add it to our, to our wealth. We really will do Israel a favor. God must have made a mistake. And we told that God says, I've regretted that I made Saul king. And so you think, well, why is Haman so mad? It seemed like his great, 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 great granddaddy was spared. Well, unfortunately, the story kind of unfolds a little bit. After Samuel confronts Saul, he says, go get me the king. They bring the king before him. And it says that the pastor, the priest, basically butchers this guy into multiple pieces. And he carries out the instruction. It's down there, verse 32 for 33. Basically, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely bitterness and death is found. We're all good, right? <laughs> but Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother be childless among women. And Samuel, I can't believe I'm reading this on Mother's Day. <laughs> We have flowers like this, you know, like. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord on Gilgal. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. It is really bad. I like, I didn't realize it's Mother's Day in this day. Like it wasn't planned. So as we get back to Esther, kind of moving along, generations have gone by. So now when we read Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agadite, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Huh. That's one piece of the puzzle. If you turn with me back to Esther chapter 2, verse 5, which we covered last week, when Mordecai is introduced, we learn about him. Now, there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemuel, the son of Kish. That should catch your attention. Well, maybe not I've been studying ahead, so it catches my attention. Kish is the father of Saul, a Benjamite. So this whole story between these two men goes back generationally. And so the point of all of this, and I'll do my best to tie it into Mother's Day, but probably in a way that you guys won't like. The thing that really grips me about this story This story is many generations removed from the source that happened. This is a story they'd heard about, their great-great-great-grandfather. It wasn't in their generation. But when we read about Haman, at the mention of the Jews, it fills him with rage. He didn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wanted to decimate them all. Where does this come from? We teach it. 
I grew up in San Diego. This is like, we really, like, I don't really feel, like, I, I came from a Navy family, so I didn't see, I'll never forget the first time I went down to the South and getting a haircut and seeing the race. I thought I was in a movie. Because in movies, that's where the racism happens. It talks about long, long time ago, not like real world, like hearing people. I should have realized there was a difference when the guy's smoking a cigarette, cutting my hair, and then what he said, what he said, I was like, I just couldn't believe it. But bigger than racism, what happens is like this whole, what are we teaching from one generation to the next? See, now there's Mother's Day. And most of us have great moms that we love. Like, I'm married to a great mom. I Like, her mom is a great mom. Like, I really am blessed, like, being married into moms. But see, my personal life, for those of you who don't know, I was raised in an extremely abusive home. And, and at 11 years old, I had to stand before the judge and testify against my mom and her abuse. It was the last time I saw my mother, and she passed away a couple years ago. I've forgiven her. I've, but they're, they're created all sorts of personal issues in my own life and struggles and pain. But growing up, I always said, my big catch line was, I'm fine, I'm good. And then when I was somewhere between, like, I don't know exactly when it was, but somewhere between the age of 16 and 22, in that range, 22 is about when I became a Christian, I was looking at my siblings. I'm number six of seven children from my mom. Different dads, but all the same mom. And it's so much easier to see faults in other people. That's a big amen, everybody. Like, you can't see it in yourself. And I, I'll never forget looking. I don't know how. I, it's, it was a, to me, it's a very distinct memory, but it could have happened over like a series of of years. And I remember always thinking, like, going down the pecking order of my siblings and going, I see how my mom jacked up that one. I see how my mom jacked up that one. I see how my mom jacked up that one. I see how my mom jacked up that one. Was that one, two, three, four, five? This one's good to go. That one's jacked up. (laughs) So they're jacked up, they're jacked up, they're jacked up, they're jacked up. I'm good. They're jacked up. And then one year I was going around going... I wasn't literally pointing my fingers, but in my mind, I'm thinking, I see the problems, I see the problems, I see the problems. And I thought, who am I kidding to think that I don't have problems that are, that are being passed down generationally? And, and it was very clear, like, I, like a point of like somewhere over this window of what I've, if I mess up everything in my whole life, I'm okay with that so long as I don't mess up my marriage and my kids. Like, I'm okay failing at this church thing. I'm okay failing at whatever. But I made this real, this, this line in the sand, and it happened one night while at church as a new believer. This guy was praying. I don't even know who he was, but he prayed a prayer that I'll never forget. As he prayed, his prayer was, Lord, please let the consequences of my sins fall on me alone, not on my children, not on my grandchildren. May they be spared from the cycle 
And it was this overwhelming sort of like wake-up call. Like God took me and threw me into a bath of ice and said, you better wake up or you're going down the same path of destruction. Because if the cycle was so easy to break, everybody would break this cycle of dysfunction. But the reality is, is very few. And I'm sorry, the happy Mother's Day. Like, let me, like, I feel passionate about this. Because Jesus wants to free us from this broken cycle. He died on the cross so that our sins could be paid for. That you could take the good that you got from her. And my mom gave me all kinds of, my biological mom gave me all sorts of good stuff. I'm thankful for the non-biological moms that have invested in me. But, but, but on this Mother's Day, I think it's a huge day for us. To, this is the spin you guys aren't going to like. But this is a day we think generationally. Like we, we give thanks to our moms. We try to thank, force our kids to be thankful, to appreciate what their moms do for them. Some of you might even be in church today because that's like part of the arm twisting. Like for your mom, you can go to church. That was me. And, but to think we can give thanks, but I think also to evaluate, well, have you, guys, have you had that point in your life where you say something and you think, ah, that's what my dad said. I got to go wash my mouth out with soap. How did that come out? Like, I'm him. It's true. But to reflect what things are we passing down, what, what generation, like, there are good things that we can pass down, but what are, but are we passing down things that are not so good? And I look at this story and I see this anger and this isn't developed just overnight. This is like people from one generation than that. This is why Haman hated these people. He had, they're in captivity. They had nothing. And yet his hatred boils as fresh as if it was like he was there. And so he comes up with this plan and it's so easy for us to think this plan is so crazy that none of us would think there but the reality is that if we let anger and bitterness fester in our hearts given the right resources places of authority we would do the very same thing we're the problem it's not the other guy i've heard it said that bitterness and anger it's like swallowing poison and hoping that the other person dies And so here we go in verse 12. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded the king's satraps to the governors who were over each province and the princes of each people and province according to its script, each people according to its language being written in the name of King Ashuerus and sealed with this signet ring. So they gather all of the people from all the different provinces. There were multiple languages spoken. They gathered the people that could get the information and then translate it into the proper language and then write it into a letter. And so they did that. And then verse 13, we read, letters were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces. I haven't been able to back it up, but I think I'm pretty sure that the Pony Express, the I've heard that the Pony Express, like whatever the expression was when, the, when we, our Pony Express came up, they got the, the saying historically from this group of people going out, the couriers. But I still have to do research. I thought it was, for you history buffs, check it out. 
Go to Snoop's, come back to me, tell me if it's true or not. I'm, you know, you're better at verifying than I am. So they were couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict was issued as law to every province, was published to all the peoples, so that they should be ready for this day. This day was many... We just celebrated Easter. I'm getting ahead of myself. Just don't forget we just celebrated Easter. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. While the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. So basically this edict went out. In verse 13, we see that it was the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So this, that, that's the day that the letter went out. That day is significant. If you were to go back to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5, you'll see that the 14th is the Passover. And so this is on Passover Eve that this letter is going out that all of the Jews, as they're about to celebrate Christmas or whatever, they get the news that they're going to be decimated. We know that this is springtime. We just celebrated Easter. This, is, this, this letter went out saying that this was going to happen basically December 31st of that year. So they had to sit on this information for many, many months before it would be executed. Of course, the city and the region is in total confusion. What is going on? Why are the Jews, why is this, how did all of this happen? And while this is going on, the king and Haman are pouring their scotch over ice. Cheers, buddy. And you think, how can a person be so filled with wrath that there's no conscience? I think people do this all the time. The interesting thing is, I'm wrapping up here. When I look at this story, God's not mentioned. It it goes from like bad to like really bad to this is like now we have a situation on our hands that this whole story as it unfolds is is as a result of chapter 3. How do we handle this? The irony here is Esther, this nobody orphan. Jewish girl rises to the level of queen, unannounced, unknown. Mordecai is passed over for sparing the king's life. The guy who's placed to control has the authority to to, to annihilate all of the people. And you think, what in the world is God doing? But the wheels of God's sovereignty are churning away slowly and everything's set in place because the very irony of everything that's now been put in place is going to be the very exact thing that God uses to spare and preserve his people. And if we don't see the cross of Christ in this, you're missing a big banner because the cross was a place to destroy Jesus. And God in turn used it as the very thing to bring salvation to the people of the world. 
And so here the wheels are set. And so I would encourage you that wherever you are in your life, things might look dark. Things might look like you don't even know how to get out. And I can assure you I've been there. My life is no bed of roses. I've made all sorts of like, let's forget what happened to me as a child. Let's just, I've got plenty of my own stories. I remember losing my security clearance for resisting the Vadian arrest as a Navy SEAL and my whole world fell apart. Everything was ripped from me and I didn't think that it could ever be brought back. And in the midst of that, I trusted in Christ as my Savior. And to see how he's worked over the years, I'm just dumbfounded. And so wherever you are today, I'd encourage you that, that Christ can help you. He loves you. I'd encourage us on this Mother's Day to really like examine our like the think sort of in generations and figure out what the good is and, and see how we can help the next generations. And so, Father, we do thank you, Lord for your love, for your grace, for your sovereignty in our lives, Lord. I, I, I'm the first to admit that so often in life, Lord, we, um, we just can't see the big picture. We look at our situation, our circumstances, and it just is, it's downright terrifying. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see or maybe not even to see, but to trust, Lord, the, the bigger picture of what you're doing in our lives, in the world. Lord, we thank you that Christ conquered death, that he made a way for us to come into relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, whether we haven't come to a place of faith or whether we've been walking with you for years, Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to the place of salvation of trusting you to the place of walking with you lord and just trusting you in the valleys in the dark places to know that ultimately you're in control father i pray lord that many of us come from broken past and and have a lot of hurt in this world as job 14 1 says our life is not fair by human standards and we suffer we hurt we have pains Lord, we thank you for Christ, that he's able to restore damage, that he's able to heal our hearts. Father, I pray that you would expose our pain, our bitterness, our anger, that we would release it to you and that we would be just healed, Lord. We long for the joy that your scriptures promise. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to pass this joy and this love to our future generations, Lord they would know Christ as their Savior, that they would walk with him. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.